0: Uh, I hope you'll get something good out of it, too. Um, and the, so just to start out with, to the translation, uh, a definition we'll work with is to restate the meaning of words in one language with words of another. Translation of Scripture is part of the work of interpreting and communicating it. So you'll see on your notes there regarding Don Quixote. So, I don't know if any... Has anyone read Don Quixote other than me? I'm the biggest nerd here, so... Oh, Janelle's read it. So, okay. So, anyway. Don Quixote is referred to as the first modern novel by a lot of literary experts. It was originally written in 1605. And the original language it was written in was Spanish. So... It was first translated into English in 1612, so seven years later. So between 1612, when the first English translation was made, and now, so many English translations have been made that it's hard for anyone to put a number on them. And new translations have still come out as recently as 2012. So uh, so I'm going to kind of... Try to get our brains cooking on this a little bit by asking, so if, if your high school teacher had told you, your assignment is to read Don Quixote in the original Spanish version and then give me an extensive report on it. Now, Manny and Leslie, they could probably handle that because they, <laughs> they speak Spanish. But even then, is the Spanish today the same as 1605? Not necessarily. So if you didn't know any Spanish at all, especially that would be difficult, and even if you knew modern Spanish, it would still probably be somewhat difficult for you to read the original Don Quixote. So, you know, the question is how many changes have happened to the Spanish language in the 400 plus years since Don Quixote was first published? So let's pretend, though, a little further that you're one of those clever students and you go to your teacher, you'll know what I'm talking about here, Lorna. They come and they say, oh, but come on, give me a break here, right? So, they, so you say, hey, I don't speak Spanish and I don't speak Spanish from 400 years ago, so now the teacher says, okay, you don't have to read it in Spanish, but you have to read it in the original English translation from 1612, Well, that might be a little bit better, but still, you would probably need one of those Barnes & Noble special editions with all the notes on the side just to tell you what a lot of those English words meant, because they're not the same words we use today always. And so, let's say you further argue with your teacher, and finally, the teacher breaks down and says, okay, fine, you pick one of the translations. You pick one of the English translations and do a report on that. But how would you choose the translation that was best for you? Okay? So now in your notes, these questions are just kind of rhetorical. They'll, we'll let them hang out there a little bit. Which translation, and we're talking about Don Quixote here, right? We're not to the scripture yet. We will get there. Which translation would be most reliable or faithful to the original Spanish version? Would it be the 1612 translation would it be the 2012 translation somewhere in between which would be most reliable most faithful number two what would be better to translate the old Spanish into new Spanish and then into modern English or would it be better to translate directly into modern English or should it be translated only into the English that was used in 1605 and left alone Number three, which translation would you rather read? The first translation into English from 1612 or one of the newer translations? And finally, what translation would best convey to a modern person what the author was really writing? Okay, so those are things you'd think about. For those of you that just walked in, we're talking about a book called Don Quixote that was written in Spanish in 1605 and translated into English in 1612 and retranslated a number of times since then. So those are where those questions are coming from. Basically, it's some thought-provoking questions to cause us to ask. You know, which translation would be best? So the original manuscripts of the Bible were written basically in three languages: ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek, and Aramaic. Now, Hebrew and Greek are both uh, languages that have changed significantly since the original writings of Scripture, and Aramaic is a so-called dead language, just meaning it's not used, it's not really in existence anymore. So how can we as modern readers have any chance at all to understand all this? We can understand the Bible because of translations. But which translation is best? That's not so easy to answer, is it? As I've just explained with Don Quixote, it's not easy for us to decide which is the best translation there. And certainly for Scripture, there's a lot on the line. We want to make sure we're picking a good translation. So for centuries, translators have been trying to do their best to accurately translate the Bible into the native language of people around the world so that they can access it and read it for themselves. And some people have perverted the translation process. Okay, it has happened. Some people bring into their translation uh, some political issues, or they manipulate the Bible to say something that they want it to say. We're acknowledging that that happens. But the major translations that are the most common in the churches today, most of them have all been very carefully put together by teams of language experts who meticulously work to translate the Bible as best they can. And in the translating process, which usually takes many years, these teams work together, challenging each other, refining, finally putting out a translation that is peer-reviewed. You hear a lot of stuff in the news right now about studies of this and that having to do with the pandemic, and someone says, "Oh that, but that study's not peer-reviewed, or this one is, and you should take this one with more weight." The, the translation process that led to the most of the common translations we have here are a lot of really highly intelligent, scholarly people working together to try to come up with the best and most accurate trans- translation that they can based on whatever crit- criteria they're having. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go, too. But I would just say this, that we can generally c- trust the most common translations that are out there, okay? Okay. And by that, I I won't list them all, but probably the ones you'll find in the pews of most evangelical churches, um, the ones that most uh, evangelical preachers preach from, you'd probably contrast those translations. Next week, we're going to talk about interpretation, which is a slightly different topic. Interpretation is the attempt to help readers and hearers of scriptures understand and apply the biblical text. And that's the primary job I have okay? It's something I take very seriously. It's getting it right and applying it properly. That's, that's the, the very difficult job sometimes that I have. Sometimes it's easier than others. Some passages are very difficult. Um, so preparing a sermon is basically a work of interpretation. and uh, But so can private study. If, as you study Scripture privately, that is also a work of interpretation. Hopefully you're trying to say how can I apply this in my own life and how I'm living. So tonight, um, I want to take a look and recognize some of who I'll refer to as faith heroes who had a mark on the translation of Scripture into English. Now, someone might say, well, you're just talking about scholarly stuff. How could they be heroes? Because some of them were put to death for having the nerve to translate the Bible into the common language. So I think they are heroes. They fought against uh, an institution that said, you can't translate, we don't want the common people to be able to read the scripture. So I can't cover all of those heroes, but we're going to look at some of the main players uh, that really helped lead to the translations that we have today. And so we'll begin with, um, in a moment here, with, with some of those. So English speakers now have access to an unprecedented number of Bible versions in their own language. Most of these are produced by and marketed to Christians, uh, primarily Protestants, but also Roman Catholics and adherents of the Orthodox churches. And the choice of texts and formats available to today's readers is vast, and it continues to grow. However, this situation has not always been the case. It's relatively recent. At some points in history, governments regulated English language versions and punished, even to the death penalty, those who dared to oppose official policies regarding Bible translation. Individuals who disregarded these regulations are now viewed as heroes or martyrs. The the history of Bible translations in the English language is not a dry recitation of names and dates, Rather, it is the story of real human beings who are motivated by their sincere awareness of how the Word of God should be presented in a world where Hebrew and Greek, the original languages of the Bible, were no longer understood. Early translations um, into English go back to the 7th century. So the Bible has been being translated into English since the 7th century. And that was, there was a poet and a cowherd uh, who retold Bible stories in Anglo-Saxon verse. And you wouldn't be able to understand that English because the English language itself has changed so much. England's first uh, church historian reported uh, that, or, I'm sorry, the first church historian whose name was the Venerable Bede, the Venerable Bede, B-E-D-E, Uh, He began to translate the Gospel of John, but they say the work is now lost. In the 10th century, a monk named Alfred inserted his complete Anglo-Saxon translation of the the Gospels between the lines of text in the Lindisford Gospels, an 8th century illuminated Gospel book that's now kept in the British Library the theologian and philosopher John Wycliffe. His translation of much of the Bible into Middle English appeared in the 1380s. His translation was part of a reformist project to make the Bible and its teachings available to the general public. Wycliffe, or Wycliffe's translation was based on the Latin text known as the Vulgate. He died in 1384. However, his bones were dug up decades later and burned as posthumous punishment for his alleged heresy. Can you believe that? So they decided he was a heretic. He was already dead. So they went and dug up his bones and burned the bones. <laughs> so, and then his translation was banned, and Bible translation was subsequently forbidden in England for a period of time. Then there was the priest William Tyndale. He was born about a century after Wycliffe's death, and he produced an English-language version that derived directly from Hebrew and Greek, the original languages, along with a bit of Aramaic, in which the Bible is composed. Because Bible translation was, for, was banned in England, Tyndale worked in Germany, where he was active in the first part of the 16th century At precisely the same time Martin Luther was preparing his English language translation as part of his Reformation. Um, Like Wycliffe, Tyndall insisted that the message of Scripture should be directly accessible to all. Directly accessible to all. In 1535, before Tyndall could complete his Old Testament, he was imprisoned in Brussels for 16 months and he was tried by the Catholic Church and killed as a heretic. However, Tyndale's work did not die with him, as other translators borrowed extensively from his text. In 1535, Miles Coverdale produced the first complete English Bible. 1535. And it was called the Coverdale Bible, and he used Tyndale's translation wherever it was available. This Bible received the approval of King Henry VIII. I'm Henry VIII, I am. Sorry, couldn't help myself. (laughs) Okay. And in 1537, Matthew's Bible, which was a revision of the Tyndale and Coverdale Bibles, appeared in England. That translation was named for Thomas Matthew, and that was a pseudonym for a man named John Rogers, and he was one of Tyndale's disciples. But Rogers was also burned at the stake for that work. <coughs> Tyndall's translation decisively set the terms for English language Bibles until the present. So even today, we're being blessed by the work of these men who worked so hard to get the Bible translated. All right. So then we move forward into the 1600s. Um, when we find out about the King James version of the Bible, okay? The production of Bible translations at this period was political and also a theological and literary enterprise at times. And James himself convened these meetings of the translators. The king himself prepared the guidelines. He chose the personnel. He oversaw the process. And he gave final approval... Ultimately, the authorization, right? It's called the authorized version, um, and the name, then the version was named for him. And King James determined that the King James version would primarily be a revision of the Bishop's Bible, which also relied heavily on Tyndall, and would be acceptable to both Anglicans, which they considered the high church, and Puritans, which they called the low church. The translators themselves were made up of six committees. There were three for the Old Testament, two for the New Testament, and one for the Apocrypha. And they were left to carry out the translation. There's still committee notes existing from these so that people can go and actually study how they came up with and made the decisions they did. You can You can go back if you were so inclined, and you can learn a lot about that. So, We can get insights into the education, the religious leadings of these uh, men who translated, the temperament um, of the individual translators. And careful textual comparisons reveal that these translators were indebted to previous or contemporary sources, but predominantly Tyndall, whose translation was used 83% of the time for the New King James Version. And such famous lines as, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and let there be light, and in the beginning God created the word, are all attributed to Tyndall, And so most of our translations today stay fairly faithful to that as well. So um, there's a lot more that could be said about that, and I'm not going to try to bore you with all of it, but I don't think it's boring personally, but I know other people don't find it as interesting as me all the time. (laughs) But... Um, but what imparts the, uh, this is a quote from, uh, I don't know who I have, who I, oh, Max Margolos. He said, what imparts the English Bible, its beauty its sim- and its simplicity comes from the Hebrew original. It is this beauty and simplicity that has accorded to the K- King James Version a central place among in- English language Bibles and among major works of the English lang- literature in general. The first publication of the completed King James Version uh, was in 1611. However, there were reprintings and subsequent editions of the King James Version that frequently uh, introduced new errors, even as they were seeking to correct old mistakes. For example, the King James Version edition of 1631 earned the nickname the Wicked Bible. Because it omitted the word not in the commandment prohibiting adultery. It's a typo, but a pretty big, significant one, right? if you take thou shalt not commit adultery and take out the word not, that's a wicked Bible, they said. That's the wicked Bible. Um, So accidental mistakes of that sort resulted from the fact that printers lacked sufficient type sometimes to set an entire volume and so they were constantly needing to reset their pages, and because of that, there were many highly publicized errors like that. Um, Also, the King James Version did not eliminate all of its rivals. The Geneva Bible, for example, constituted the scripture for the American-bound pilgrims. Yet after a few decades, the King James Version was firmly established as the authorized text for Protestant churches and occupied a prominent spot in almost all home and institutional libraries where English was the language of everyday communication. The first major and official re- revision of the King James Version didn't appear until the 1880s. So in other words, it stayed exactly the same pretty much from 1611 to the 1880s. Um, and then the English Revised Version was published between 1881 and 1885 with the New Testament preceding the Old, that's interesting, isn't it? They put the New Testament first. And there was some support for that, but it failed to win over the majority of those who had been longtime adherents of the King James Version. Like Tavi says, sings in the Fiddler on the Roof tradition, right? We like what we're used to. And so that's a lot of that. that it was hard for a long time for new translations to have any headway. Um, and the ERV was somewhat easier to understand, but it lacked the literary style and grace of the King James Version, so it never achieved the success uh, that the ones who put it together had anticipated. And even though Americans and British spoke the same language, their versions of English vary slightly. Thus, an Americanized version of the ERV appeared in 1901 with spelling and grammar conforming to usage in the United States and the descendants of the, this American Standard Version, ASB, formed two branches of the King James Version family tree. One branch is the New American Standard Bible, NASB, which first appeared in the 1960s and has been continually revised and updated since. The other branch produced two versions, the Revised Standard Version, or RSV, um, and the New Revised Standard Version, nrsv from 1990 these versions were sponsored by the national council of churches which has led to some criticism that they were these volumes were too literal liberal some some people felt they were too liberal in the early 1950s critics set copies of the rsv on fire accusing its translators of being communists Nonetheless, the RSV and the NRSV have been widely re- used in academic and seminary settings, and one, of, one other member of the King James Version family goes directly back to the King James Version itself, and that is the new King James Version. Uh, this version aimed to maintain the maximum amount of original King James Version material while updating when absolutely necessary. Um, And then two editions are noteworthy from the period prior to the 1940s. There was a British version and an American translation. Um, And the American Bible Society adopted uh, a new criticism approach with their Good News Bible in 1976. And the CEV, or the Contemporary English Bible, in 1995... Um, the editors of the CEV describe its language as contemporary and its style as lucid and lyrical. Um, the translators of the CEV didn't assume that readers were comfortable with the technical terminology that's found in more literal uh, versions of the Bible. So, you guys getting bored yet with all this? I'll get to some good stuff earlier uh, in a bit. So, um, so in other words, some translations were more free. Um, and some were more literal. A literal translation, an example of that would that be uh, what I handed out this morning in church where it had the uh, the, the uh, O Holy Night, Cantique de Noel, a literal word for word. And you can see the difference between what's a literal word for word and what is more of a, a free-flowing and easier-to-understand-and-read translation. Um, and I wasn't really planning that as I printed that out for this morning, that that actually kind of was a good example for our class here tonight, so that was good. Um, Now, when a translation is very free, it is generally referred to as a paraphrase. It's called a paraphrase. Now, some well-known paraphrases today are the Living Bible from 1971, Uh, which was largely superseded by the more scholarly New Living Translation in 1996 and The Message, 2002, which is still heavily promoted and widely sold, even though the translator of The Message, Eugene Peterson himself, never wanted this version to replace the excellent study Bibles that are available. He only wanted it to get people reading who didn't uh, know the Bible and didn't find it readable. Um, in fact, uh, one of my professors was a student of Peterson and said that he was frankly appalled that people would preach from the message from the pulpit. He never intended it for anything more than for really new believers to, to help them get into the Bible. Okay, so looked at solely on the basis of sales, the most popular and influential language, English language version is the NIV, New International Version. And there's two related editions, the New International Reader's Version, which came out in 1998, which is excellent for people with a lower reading level. Uh, So, like, if someone's just learning to read, um, that's a good version for them. Uh, And then also today's New International Version, which is marked by increased uh, sensitivity to issues such as gender, All NIV-related products reflect the conservative theological presuppositions of more than 100 scholars who worked on that translation. The following statement expresses the goals that motivated the translators, that the NIV be an accurate translation and one that would have clarity and literary quality and so prove suitable for public and private reading, teaching, preaching, memorization, and liturgical use. The NIV was revised in 2011, and the previous 1984 version was discontinued. Then there's the uh, English Standard Version, the Revised English Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, uh, the New Century Version, God's Word, New Life Version, are just some of the others that are out there um, that are trying to present easy-to-understand texts but also be as uh, loyal to the text as possible. For English-speaking Roman Catholics, there was no English translations made directly from the Hebrew or Greek until after World War II. And prior to that, all Catholic translations into English were made from the Latin, Vulgate. So instead of translating from the Greek to English, they translated from the Greek to the Latin to the English. So you can see how sometimes that would be They're sometimes more lost in translation, right? So let's say, for example, you had someone that spoke French and Spanish, and you had a person that spoke um, French only, and you had a person that spoke Spanish only, and you had to use this third person in the middle to translate everything. Instead of just having one person translate, and and you can see how it easily (coughs) can get mixed up a little bit, so... All right, now we get to a question that a lot of pastors get asked. I've been asked many times, "What Bible should I be reading?" You know, and uh, modern Bible readers have an incredibly wide array of choices. Okay, the richness of these selections can cause, obviously, considerable confusion among people. And one issue is that similar-sounding titles are often found on the cover of very different translations. An example is the New American Standard Bible and the New American Bible. One is NASB and one is NAB. That could easily confuse people. Even though the NASB is a conservative Protestant edition and the NAB was specifically produced for Roman Catholics. When choosing a biblical version, readers should read through the introduction to a Bible before settling on a choice. Now, if you look in most of your Bibles, somewhere in the beginning, there will be a whole story of how they translated it. Um, And it's interesting to read those, to see what what was their philosophy, why were they translating it the way way they were, who was working on it. Sometimes you want to know that. Were they doing it for profit or not for profit? That's another possible consideration people might have. Um, you should also consider the makeup of the translation committee or the affiliation of the translators. Uh, if it's, if it's prepared by a single individual, you might want to be really careful with that. And that was part of the problem with Eugene Peterson's message, right? He pretty much wrote the whole thing himself. It's not peer-reviewed. Again, not intended to be used as a study Bible or something, but, you know, it's it's kind of... The question would be, can any one person do such an excellent job of it's that accurate for, compared to a, a team of 100 or 300 or whatever it might be? Um, for some people, the format may affect their decision, of which they might like the large print and they can only find it in a particular version, so they, they're going to choose that. Um, some people, it's the number of notes. They want a great study Bible with lots of footnotes, and that might affect how they choose. Um, and so there's that, I mentioned the literal and the free, and there's, you know, all translations are somewhere on this pendulum between really free and really literal. They're, they're somewhere on that pendulum. Um, versions that are more literal can sometimes, sometimes be called equivalence translations. And uh, those responsible for those versions are trying to re- reproduce English in as many features as possible, or in Eng- They're trying to re- sorry, I ever start that over they're trying to reproduce in English as many features as possible of the Hebrew or the Greek. And the more literal translations tend to sound a little more foreign to us, uh, because they're trying to follow that Hebrew and Greek text um, from antiquity, so it sounds a little different. Um, and those kind of versions, by the way, also mean that the reader might have to work a little harder to go to the text, meaning users of a more literal translation need to make a, more of an effort to understand the language and the grammar of the English they're reading. Um, more free translations are often said to follow the approach of functional equivalence. In such versions, more attention is given thank you uh, to how a particular phrase Functioned in ancient Hebrew or Greek than to the form in which that phrase was set. Colloquial, at least, or at least modern English exp- expressions predominate in these versions, and the grammar is usually easier to follow. All right, I'm going to move on a little bit here. Um, so, I want to talk a little bit about the manuscripts that are used to make the translations, because that also affects the translations themselves. So ancient manuscripts and translations of the Bible, which, exi- which exist as important witnesses to the f- text of the Old and New Testament, um, are they've been found throughout the Middle East and other parts of the world as well. Ancient translations into other Bible languages Or I'm sorry, ancient translations into other languages provide important evidence in establishing the text of the Bible. The books of the Old Testament were originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic and then copied and transmitted from generation to generation. Similarly, the New Testament was written in Greek and then copied as it began to spread through the church. The vast majority of our English versions of the Bible today are based upon texts that resulted from this transmission in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Faith communities going back to 250 BC were also translating the Bible into their own languages just so they could read and understand it. So there were Greek speaking Jews in Alexandria, for example, um, and, and that was in Egypt, so they translated the Old Testament into Greek even 250 years before Christ. Um, Christian converts in Edessa, Syria, translated the entire Bible into Syriac language. The New Testament was translated into Latin, Gothic, and Arminian. These ancient translations of the Bible in different languages are very important in two essential ways. First, they provide additional witnesses to the text of the Bible. So we can go look at other translations into other languages, and these people that know all these languages and study them can better put together where there's accuracies and where there might not be. Just wait till we're done. The ancient versions, just because this is being recorded and people will listen later, they won't hear what you say. The ancient versions provide examples of ancient exegesis and interpretation of the Bible. The available Hebrew and Greek manuscripts are late and come from the latter part of the transmission process. Although copying was done very carefully, scribes would often commit errors. Does that happen when we copy things today? Even when I type them. Or autocorrect doesn't work, right? They didn't have autocorrect, though. But they might have errors such as um, misreading. They might have misread one of the letters, and as they copied it down, they put the wrong letter because they didn't read it right. They might smudge the ink. They might accidentally omit a word. They might repeat a word they would already written. And so once an error is introduced in the text, the copies of that text also repeat that error, right? And so the ancient versions present a snapshot of the biblical text at an earlier time. So in the process of what's called textual criticism, Hebrew and Greek texts of the Bible are compared to the ancient versions in an attempt to determine which readings most accurately reflect the original documents. Additionally, translation is essentially a form of interpretation. Translators come to an understanding of the source text and then convert it into a different language system. The ancient translator was required to interpret the Bible in order to communicate to his audience. Therefore, in, order, in addition to explicit interpretive texts demonstrating how faith communities understood the Bible, um, translations provide insights into Jewish and Christian opinions a biblical interpretation. Do you believe that opinions could come into it too, right? Um. So, uh, I think I'll move a little further into here. Um, okay, the biblical texts found at the at Cymron, near the Dead Sea in 1947 are very important. They dated from the middle of the 2nd century B.C. up until the middle or late 1st century A.D. And they were likely created by a Jewish religious sect called the Essenes. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are significantly early texts in Hebrew. They provide direct evidence from the turn of the era, almost 1,000 years earlier than the oldest complete Hebrew manuscript possessed before their discovery. So what what they're saying here is that in 1947, and if I remember the story right, a boy, I don't know if he was a little shepherd boy or something, and he was walking and he threw a rock into a cave and he heard something crack. And he went into the cave and here they discovered just tons and tons of scrolls and manuscripts. And from that they were able to take a look and see uh, a more accurate picture of some of the texts that were out there. And a number of additional Hebrew texts with fragments of biblical material have also been discovered. The oldest known fa- fragments are called the Silver Scrolls, which date from the 7th century B.C. and contain part of the priestly blessing of Numbers six twenty two to 27. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you, and so on. Between... A.D. 500 and 1,000, Masoretes, who were Jewish scribes in Palestine and Babylon, began updating the text of the Old Testament so that it contained accents, vowels, and other annotations designed to remove uncertainty and preserve a vocalized tradition. The Aleppo Codex... Remember the the name Aleppo was in the news some years ago? There was some terrorism that happened there. Um... The Aleppo Codex was completed in A.D. 930, but a quarter of it was destroyed in a later fire during persecutions of Jews in Syria. The Leningrad Codex, completed about 50 years later, is the best complete surviving manuscript of the Old Testament in Hebrew. It's the main source for the most recent critical editions of the Hebrew Old Testament and the basis for most English translation. So to try to make that a little more simple... When some of the older Bible translations were first done, they took the best manuscripts they had at the time, and they used them to translate into English. But since then, many more manuscripts have been found, and some of them are older than the ones they had originally, which means that they can track back and see. Sometimes they can actually identify when that error happened, when the guy added the extra letter in, or when he left one out and uh And so new translations are getting more accurate all the time as far as their loyalty and uh compared to the original uh texts. Um, the rest of this I have inserted into your notes about the different English bible versions. I'll have you read that on your own later, but that's really some interesting stuff and uh the last thing i'm going to mention, and i I thought this was kind of fun to put in. And you'll hear sometimes, uh, there's churches still today that say, in fact, I've been in churches, and they will say right on the front door when you come in, this is a King James-only church. Have any of you seen that ever? Um, There are still some uh, mostly Baptist churches, but they'll have right on the door there, we're a King James-only, King James-version-only church. But nobody is really using the original 1611 King James Version. They're using a a newer version of it. That's the one most people that use the King James Version today, they're carrying around, uh, I believe it's a 1769 version or something like that. And so I put in your notes there just for your pure enjoyment and pleasure what the original King James Version had from one of the Christmas texts of Luke uh, 2, 1 through 20, and, uh, and Winston, why don't you ra- read verse 4 for us? I'm just kidding, because <laughs> I looked at verse 4, and I thought, oh my goodness, That's, uh, that would be hard to read. The point of all this is just to say that the English language has changed a lot since 1611, and so we can be thankful that we have translators that are continuing to try to enhance our understanding of Scripture So, with that, we're going to go to our um, group time after Janelle shares her pearl of wisdom with us. Yes.